I realized, you know, my identity really was tied up in work. I didn't identify as a stay-at-home mom, nor did I identify as a wealthy woman. <laughs> in fact, both those titles were ones that I did not want. Lunching and doing my nails and, you know, all the images that it brings up. So I had to get comfortable and I had to find out what really was going to bring me a sense of purpose. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you're becoming increasingly familiar with that, are you not? It is a great day to be alive, as are all days when you are alive, and probably days when you're not alive. Like, after we're all dead, there will still be good days. We just won't be a part of them in the way we've traditionally participated. But hey, while we're here, why don't we make the most of it, enjoy each other's company for the next 45 to 60 minutes? I have a great conversation to share with you today, and it's with a woman named Jennifer Risher. She is the author of a new book called We Need to Talk, a Memoir About Wealth. Wait a minute. Are we going to talk about wealth? Yeah. We are. Let me offer you this. Did you know that there's over 18 million millionaires in the United States? Did you know that? And did you know that the 1%, the mysterious and untrustworthy 1%, that there's over 1.6 million households in that group? That's households, not people. So that's a lot of people that have a lot of money. And most of those people, the vast majority of them did not grow up with a lot of money. They grew up either poor or middle class. This is a description that I would include myself in. So what does that mean? That means that they had to learn how to handle money. They had to learn how to be rich. We want to speak frankly about it. And yet, talking about having money is considered extremely rude. A recent Money Matters study found that 68% of people would rather talk about their weight than their money. Furthermore, people are more comfortable talking about sex than they are talking about money. So... I'm not going to talk to you about my love handles or about love problems, but I think it's very important for us to talk about money. And I'm glad that I have the opportunity to have Jen on the show today. Here's the obligatory caveat, the disclaimer, folks. We're going to be discussing high class problems, first world problems, good problems to have. We live in a highly unequal world where most people can't fathom having even enough money, let alone more money than they need. But talking about things that happen when you make a lot of money might actually get people to start thinking, maybe being rich isn't the goal. Maybe living the life I want to lead is the goal. And maybe there's a role for money to have in that, and there is. But maybe the end goal shouldn't be, let's just make a whole bunch of money because life, when you get a lot of money, isn't perfect. It's better. It's better than being broke. It's better than not knowing how to pay your rent. It's better than not knowing if your car is going to start every morning when you go out and you turn the key. Sorry, I'm 51 years old. We used to have keys in cars. But you know what I'm saying? So there's my caveat, all right? But let's be clear. I always dreamed about having a lot of money. And then when I did, all my problems didn't go away. They changed, but they didn't go away. I didn't know what to do with it. And in fact, having money caused me more problems than I ever anticipated. Here's one that happens. You know the concept of FU money, as in you have enough money so you can tell people, other people, your boss is pretty much who they're talking about here, that you can tell your boss 
what you really want to do. Well, the reason they call it FU money isn't because when you get a lot of money, you can say that to your boss. They call it that because when you get that amount of money, you will say it to your boss and you will say it without a plan necessarily of what you're going to do next. You will say it without a clear understanding of the role work plays in your life. You will say it not understanding how much of your identity is tied up in your corporate job in the network that you've spent years or decades building. You will say it because you're working for more than just a paycheck. You're working for belongingness, belonging to a network, belonging to a company or a network or a group of people who are actually really smart and whose company you enjoy, even if they're occasionally annoying and engage in office politics. You're doing it because work provides you with self-esteem and satisfaction that comes from working hard at a difficult task. There's way more to life than having a lot of money. And sometimes it takes actually making that money to figure that out. And that is unfortunate. And what Jen is doing here in sharing her story, I believe is a noble act. She is trying to share insights of what the experience is really like so that people don't fetishize it for so long. So that perhaps as a society, we feel like there's more to life than just trying to make a whole bunch of dough. Of course, there's going to be people out there that are looking with side eye at what Jen has to say. The New York Post posted a snarky title for the review of her book because it's easier to just poke fun at it and get people to jump on board with their derision than it is to actually sit down and say, hey, this is a confusing issue. It's going to take thoughtful people having discussions and using their patience and their listening skills to really understand what's going on here. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to tell you more about Jennifer Risher. As early Microsoft employees, Jennifer and her then future husband, now husband husband, David Risher, made millions of dollars from their employee stock options in the quickly growing company. Remember when Microsoft was the startup darling? When David joined Amazon as an early leader, those millions became tens of millions And Jen found herself nervously navigating the world of affluence. In her new book, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth, Jen explores the mind-bending experience of earning way more than she needed or ever imagined. While acknowledging her very good fortune, she nevertheless found herself dealing with guilt, awkward social situations, imposter syndrome, and the loss of identity that comes when you stop working. Jen Risher was born in Seattle, Washington, grew up in Oregon, and graduated from Connecticut College. She joined Microsoft in 1991, where she worked as a recruiter and then as a product manager. She and her husband, David, have two daughters and live in San Francisco. David is CEO of World Reader, a nonprofit he co-founded with a mission to create a world in which everyone is a reader. This, my friends, is my conversation with Jennifer Risher. Jennifer Risher, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Jen, I did your introduction separately, so we know the name of your book, We Need to Talk, A Memoir About Wealth. And since the title includes the spoiler that you're already affluent, can you please tell me how you came to your wealth and why you wrote the book? I can. So I've been really lucky. When I was 25, 1991, I took a job at Microsoft and I met my husband. And I also got stock that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's not wealthy. Come on. Well, wait a second, because there's more. Oh, okay. There's more. This is going to be a short interview. (laughs) When my husband joined a small, unknown startup that was selling books on the internet. It'll never work. Amazon.com. Yeah. That will work. That will work. It did work. And I mean, we were in our early 30s when the company went public, and that was a lot of money. It was 
so much money that I was shocked and also surprised by what wealth brought. I mean, I didn't find myself in a big private club hanging out and sharing financial secrets. I kind of found myself in a strange silent space where no one was really talking about money at all, even though there were lots of challenges. I mean, no one was discussing their upset at a sibling's resentment or their worry about raising spoiled, entitled children or their own ambivalence. Now, there were no dialogues about should we give to family members or how do we approach philanthropy, even though most people with wealth are new to the experience. Eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor. How are you defining wealth? Well, I think anyone who has a lot more money than they had growing up, I could let you know that there's you know 11.8 million millionaire households in the U.S. And I think that's wealth. It depends on who you are and how you think about it. But for me, I had wealth. And it's hard to imagine wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome. And I can say that money makes life easier. So there's no tears that need to be shed over my situation. But I'm very lucky. But wealth is isolating. Normally, you know, if I have a question or a problem, I turn to friends. If I want to figure out, should our 16-year-old have a curfew? I ask everyone I know. That's kind of how I do my research. I gather data. (laughs) I get other people's ideas. I hear about their experiences. I get different perspectives. And just talking is helpful. Let's me know that my concern is normal and that it's shared. But the same doesn't happen with money. I couldn't talk to people about having a lot of money. I couldn't turn to friends. So actually, I thought I'll turn to books. I'll find out how to deal with this in a book. But there are no books. So I wrote my book because my story is one I'd want to know about if it hadn't happened to me. I also wrote my book for the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up and often a lot more. I'm telling my story so that other people can understand their own. My goal is not to show people how to do rich right. I don't have an answer for that. And my story is not prescriptive. I'm just offering up a story that hasn't been told. That includes things like how hard it can be to navigate a vacation with a family that doesn't share your resources, or how upsetting it is to feel like a friend is jealous and you can't share what's going on in your life, or how painful it is to feel as though your parents disapprove of what you have. Mm. So I also wrote this story, though, now, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, this writing thing, to get us talking, because money is a taboo subject, and it doesn't have to be. And the more I talk to people about money, the more I realize it's not money itself that keeps us from talking. It's those emotions behind the money that we avoid. They're universal emotions. It's a lot of fear. We're afraid of hurting other people's feelings, or we're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of not measuring up or of sounding unknowledgeable. You know, I think we all have a certain degree of money shame and money guilt. You know, we all have a money story and those stories begin in childhood. Let's talk about that childhood. What kind of work did your parents do and what did they teach you about money while you were growing up? So my mother was a librarian who worked for a year until I was born and then stayed home with me. And my father was a insurance broker. You know, we ate dinner every night at seven o'clock and we learned the importance of reading and of saving money, being frugal. I found a lot of value in, you know, turning the lights off when I left a room, putting on a sweater (laughs) when the house was cold, eating leftovers. I mean, that was what made me a responsible and good 
daughter. It's also what made it hard to suddenly have a lot of money because I continue to do those things. Even now, I have to stop myself from driving around the block looking for a free parking spot on the street. I have to remind myself, oh, yeah, you go ahead and park in the lot. I'm the person who gets to the ATM, and if they want to charge me a fee, I don't want to pay that fee. I'll walk a couple blocks. I definitely, and I think that's part of what I discovered when I did get so lucky, is that you know the things that you learn in childhood and the way you interact with money, it stays with you. And those values are ones that you have to examine and decide, are those ones I want to keep and move forward? You said your mom wasn't comfortable with wealth or the wealthy. What did that mean? Sort of gendered here. My dad was the guy who handled the money and the finances. And my mom, you weren't supposed to, as a lady, be involved in money. And so when I asked my mom early on, you know, how much does dad make? She thought that was none of my business. I was never to ask that again. If we went out for dinner, I wasn't supposed to look at the check when it arrived. It's impolite. Yeah, she definitely felt like money is this kind of strange place. And then there were those people, those people who have a lot of it. They were sort of the obnoxious or the superior or the we weren't like them. And so it was definitely an other. How were the wealthy defined when you were a kid? Who was wealthy in your mother's perspective? So my mother grew up in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, and she actually grew up, you know, in I would say upper middle class. Her father was a lawyer and her mother didn't work. She was on the hospital board. They were very aware of etiquette and keeping up appearances. And they had a very small cottage at the edge of Weequitonsing in Michigan. Weequitonsing, nice. It was nice and it was beautiful there, but it was uncomfortable for my mom. And I remember going there as a kid and there are a lot of very large, beautiful homes in this community And they, in those big homes, were not us in our small cottage. And so there was definitely a sense of their kind of hanging out and waiting to be served. And there's definitely sort of a holding it at a distance. And yet, if you have a cottage in northern Michigan, you're very well off. Yes. Back to your question earlier of how do I define wealth? Somebody with more than me. And that's how most people define wealth. (laughs) Thus, the trick of talking about this thing, because I read a statistic not long ago that like 90% of the U.S. population defined themselves as middle class. That means according to people's self-evaluation, the middle class goes deep into like the 90 percentiles. Somebody in the 97th percentile will consider themselves middle class because there's somebody with a nicer lake house or... Tens of millions instead of millions. That's bizarre, isn't it? Isn't that weird that we do that? I think it's weird, but I think it's very human. I think we want to connect and be part of something, part of a community, part of something bigger than us. We want to, you know, be equals, or at least we want to maybe want to be a little bit better than our neighbor, but we basically don't want the gap to be too big. We want to connect with other people. And that is ultimately where the happiness comes from. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that many, many people want to think of themselves as in the middle. When you were young, one of your friends asked you what you would do if you had a million dollars. What did you say? That's funny because yes, I remember talking about that and thinking, oh, a million dollars is like a fantasy land, right? What did I say? I would have a cute boyfriend and a fancy car. A dark green Porsche, which by the way, that's correct. fantastic choice. Fantastic choice. (laughs) Yes. And I did think that all that money would change everything, that my life would be perfect. 
And I think we often set ourselves up this way, especially when it comes to money. If only, then my life would be perfect. If only I could get that big promotion. I mean, we do it in other ways too. If only I lost 20 pounds or if only I met the right person. But a friend of mine said, you know, I used to lie in bed awake at night kind of thinking, if only I could make $100,000. Yeah. Yeah. And then she's laughing because she's making more than that. And she's still lying in bed at night, unable to sleep. I think about that (laughs) now. If I could make a hundred grand doing this podcast, then I'd be happy. Then you'd be happy. That's exactly right? right. Yeah. Well, and I had that if only happened to me and- I'm still me. (laughs) I still have insecurities. My feelings get hurt. I make mistakes. I mean, this is not fair. I want to get to the questions about the games we play about what will happen when we make money. But first I want to level set. What was your husband's background like? And as a way of illustrating it, will you share the anecdote about his banking internship and what his boss asked him to do? Sure. So my husband, he grew up with a single mom. His mom got divorced when he was seven. He had a younger brother. You know, when he recounts his childhood, he thinks of a very happy childhood, but he does remember, you know, overhearing his mom on the phone with the neighborhood day camp, begging them to take her boys for free so that she could go to work. So when he was growing up, they never went out for dinner. First time he ever went out for dinner was his grandmother took him out when he graduated from high school. Wow. So when he was in college and working at a bank that he was doing well and his boss told him, you know, go out, have a dinner on me. So it's on me. So he was baffled about what to do. And he kind of went, he went out with a friend. He went went to a Mexican restaurant. And when he brought the receipt to his boss, his boss was like, try again. (laughs) He had not spent enough money. So he didn't. That sounds awesome. He didn't what know cool how to spend boss. money and neither did I. So it kind of made a good pair. So when you and your husband became millionaires, and this is back to what we were talking about just a second ago, how did it change your life? In some ways it really didn't. And in other ways, I spent a lot of time trying to hide it. When this happened, we had our first child. And so I was a new mom. And that's mostly what I was. I was thrilled, amazed, like this curtain had opened. I was in this new world of motherhood and I joined a mother's group and we shared so much in common. We all wanted to talk about sleep for hours and crying babies and how to pacify them and all the wonders that came with with being moms. And it was so connecting to share that with a group of women. At the same time, this other world had opened. Suddenly I knew I had so much money in my future. And that world was a silent one. I couldn't talk about it. How did the stress manifest for you in that environment? I found myself staying quiet. I mean, we would be talking about strollers or high chairs and people would be comparing notes on what costs what or what's expensive. And I just couldn't chip in or I didn't feel like I could be part of the conversation. Or if people were complaining about how stressful it was to be a new mom with a baby. And I felt like I couldn't complain. What did I have to complain about? Yeah, David was working long hours and I was alone a lot of evenings, but I couldn't complain about that. And, you know, looking back at myself now, I would tell myself, you need to talk about this. You need to share with your friends. At the time, I didn't. At the time, I kind of had always heard, oh, the wealthy worry about other people liking them for their money. But I wasn't worried about being liked for what we had. I was worried about being hated for it. 
Why? I didn't want anyone to know. Why did you worry about being hated for it? Well, probably because of the way I grew up, sort of feeling like, you know, they are, are bad or, you know, going to be obnoxious. I worried I was going to get really obnoxious too. Luckily, I don't think that's happened. You can you can ask around, but <laughs> in the end, it didn't change me as much as I might have imagined. It didn't even change me as much as I might have hoped. <laughs> I'm still me. I think money ends up revealing more about who you are than changing you. How did you get comfortable with your affluence? I spent 14 years writing a book about it. I think that was a big part of my therapy process is really kind of delving into the book. And then I think living and experiencing and realizing that trying to keep this hidden was not helping me and it was not helping anyone around me. I had to step into my new identity and get comfortable with it. And it's just a matter of practice and realization that, yeah, no, I'm not going to get rejected all the time. And it's a benefit. And I want to realize that benefit and the luck that I have and the freedom I have. And so I feel very fortunate that yeah, I've been able to seize the great advantage that money can offer. But you were very uncomfortable accepting the luxuries that came along with that lifestyle at first. You really seemed conflicted about the luxury travel, the hotels, business class, your housing situation. How did you come to either accept it or rationalize it? I had to embrace it. I had to get comfortable with who I had become and make sure that I was still living my values. And I think it took time, time and just experiencing. I actually experimented with things. Like at one point I was like, okay, here this fantasy's come true. Why are we still, you know, living in a house that doesn't stand out from any other, or driving cars that are nothing? Why doesn't it match the fantasy that you see on TV? What if it did? What could I do? What and, you know, I kind of did things that was the way I thought the wealthy lived. And some of them felt okay and some of them didn't. And that's a little bit of experimentation. Where did you draw the line on that? Well, we purchased a second home and we did a big remodel on it, which ended up being a beautiful place. And I'm very happy to have it. My husband was working at Amazon at the time and he went on a private jet with Jeff Bezos and thought that was a pretty cool way to travel. So <laughs> he, he wanted to yeah. try it. So we tried that and yeah, it was a pretty cool way to travel, but we had young kids. I drew the line there. Like, I don't want them on private jets as young kids. I mean, their reality is already so different than the people around them. I want them going to the airport. I mean, it's already a luxury to fly. I want them going to the airport with standing in line with everyone else and part of the wilder real world. <laughs> So speaking of your kids, you have two daughters about 20 years old. Is that right? Yes. How did you broach the topic of wealth with your daughters? We always told them that they are very lucky. They've kind of grown up knowing that they're very fortunate. Did they know that though? Because when you're young and you're a young, rich kid and you're surrounded by other rich kids, by definition, somebody has an even bigger house than you do. Somebody has a chef. Somebody is flying private. Even if you're flying business class to spring break, somebody's doing it better than you. So how do you have that conversation about who has a lot and helping them understand that even though they don't have as much as their friend, they also are wildly fortunate? I don't think it's as much about telling them as showing. So I think mm. it comes down to what your values are and living those values. And it's not, you know, one conversation, it's day by day, week by week, month by month. How are you living your life? 
they're watching you. They see what you do, what you buy, what you don't buy. It's the conversations that happen around the dinner table. What do you talk about? Are you talking about money and who has what? No, we weren't. We're talking about ideas and listening to their day and talking about our own days and our friends. And when we travel, yeah, we're lucky enough to take them to amazing places, but we were kind of traveling within each city on the bus, on the train, mm. you know, experiencing the culture of different places. Mm-hmm. We've as a family, we've gone to Ghana. My husband has a nonprofit and working with kids in the developing world, getting people reading all over the world. And we visited his projects. So they've seen the world from many different perspectives. Yes, we're very lucky to be able to do those things. And that's where I kind of drew the line at the private jet. It's like, you can't tell a kid, oh, this is special or this is unusual if it's what they're experiencing every day. Right. So I wanted right. them to experience things that I was experiencing the way I think that I want to live my life and what's important to me. Did you worry about how other kids will react to their mom publishing a book about being rich? I think they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So they're older now, you know, they're in college and out of college. And I've talked about my book forever. It's right. you know, it's been many different things and they know about mom's book and they've both read it. And I think having read it, they feel a lot more comfortable about having it out in the world. I think there's a certain element of discomfort or worry for all of us because no one does talk about this. And I just think it's so important for us to talk to each other and to debunk some of the stereotypes and demystify wealth and make a change in the world. I think silence just keeps the status quo in place. Um, And it may be far reaching to think this, but I think talking can help us actually fight income inequality and wealth disparity. Silence has a lot of power. And, you know, it, it doesn't get us to examine our relationship with money. It keeps us in our bubble unaware you know, when there is a large and influential segment of the population that is not talking to each other and that feels isolated and estranged, they're probably not at their most empathetic or generous. And they're not necessarily holding themselves accountable or inspired to make change. So I'm really hoping that by talking about this, I hope my book becomes a catalyst for conversation, that we can make some bigger changes, as well as changes within our own families where we are addressing issues that right now maybe we're avoiding. What kind of issues inside our families? What would be good to talk about with our families about wealth? No matter how much you have in your bank account, if you have parents or if you have a sibling or if you have a partner, if you have friends, you know these uncomfortable situations. We all have them. It could be a sister who wants to borrow money or you're worried about your parents' financial situation or a friend who always wants to go to a expensive restaurant that is not within your budget. Do you avoid those conversations or do you kind of step into them? And I'm hoping to help us get uncomfortable to step into those conversations. They're going to be messy. They're going to be uncomfortable. But I believe that on the other side, there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of connection. And we have a lot to learn from each other. I mean, there are all kinds of things that I talk to friends about, but I don't talk to them around money sort of situations. Like, what do I do when A friend of mine asked for a loan. What do I do when my brother is resentful? What do I do, you know, about my parents? Should I give them money? How do I come up with a philanthropic strategy? How do I find the right financial advisor? There's all these questions that come up that we're not sharing with each other and talking with each other about. And we have a lot to learn from each other about these types of things. So should you loan money to a friend? You have it. Why shouldn't 
you believe in income redistribution. You just said it. Why shouldn't you give money to a friend that needs it? We've done it. We have. And what we've found is that it gets very messy. It changes the <laughs> dynamic of the relationship. Yes. Then, you know, you're in charge of, they are not paying you and you have to ask them and then they feel resentful and you feel resentful and it just doesn't, there's no goodness there. So in fact, we have a couple of those ongoing situations, but we've told people, look, we don't want to loan you money, but we'll give it to you. So just the expectations up front before the check changes hands, being very explicit about those expectations does that not still change the nature of the relationship or does it just relieve you of the stress of the expectation of ever getting it back? You, the lender, that is. Yeah, I think that's this, the latter. I think it just is a clean break. For me, I'm like, I'm going to give this money, no strings attached. I'm giving it and it's done. Is it done though? Do they come back another time looking for more money? That's very interesting. In this specific case that I'm thinking of, actually they have. And at this point we're saying, no, sorry. How does that make you feel to be in that position to tell somebody you love no? I think it's more loving to say no than to get embroiled in a codependent sort of situation. Can money solve the problems that they have? That's a good point. We do think that money can solve all our problems, but it really can't. There is something deeper under there that needs to be looked at. So this puts you in the position, you, Jen Risher, but also you, person with more than person Y. Having more puts you in the position of either granting every loan or gift request and thereby potentially enabling them with money that they haven't earned to continue whatever's put them in that position in the first place. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Is that one of the things that people that don't have a lot of money have never considered about what it's like to have money? I don't want to speak for people who who are not in my situation, but it could very well be. I think it's easy to look at someone and and let let me back up. It's a very rare case that people have asked us for money. Mostly people do not. So I think most people realize the boundary there and take a look at themselves and So I think it's a unique situation when that does happen. And yes, it's uncomfortable and it's case by case and it's person by person. And what we've found through experience is it's really one gift is one thing, but then if it goes beyond that, there's something else going on and that person needs to kind of figure out a different solution for themselves. It may feel like I'm trying to push you on this and I'm really just playing devil's advocate because I believe that the purpose of your book and the execution of your book are very, very worthwhile because I also agree with you that most people believe that the experience of making money will be very different than it ends up being. And that when you lack something in your life, as you talked about at the top, whether it's love or physical fitness or the job title or money, it's very easy to rationalize whatever feeling of incompleteness or unhappiness you have by pointing to that thing that you lack. But then when you get it and you still feel the same, and then you run into these different problems, it's better to have to tell a friend no than it is to not know where next month's rent is coming from. Clearly that is a high class problem, but it's one that people that don't have money don't anticipate. They would never think about that being a problem. Are there other things that you would point to that are stressors about being in your position that people would never even consider until they find themselves in that position? There are so many. I think you put that very well. I mean, money does make life easier up to a point. And then 
it becomes this other thing that you don't anticipate. So it is like what I said earlier, like even just thinking about traveling with another family right. and figuring out where are you going to go? Speaking what feels of- comfortable? How are you, you know, are you going to talk about up front? Should you just go camping? And then how's that going to work? And we've done it all. I mean, we, we've gone camping with people. We've rented the house and said, oh, we've already rented it. Come join us. And we've tried to vacationing. It's not easy for people to receive gifts either. When we try and offer them, you know, join us on this vacation and it makes people uncomfortable. We're making our spring break plans right now. So (laughs) where do you want to go? (laughs) I don't know. What do you got? (laughs) How do you talk your way through that? Like, what is the way that you want to do the right thing for your friend? You don't want to make them feel shame or embarrassment. And you really want to have real personal connections and experiences with people you love who are of different means. How do you approach that topic? Carefully and um, <laughs> not with a lot of ease, but I think it is important to approach. I have a friend that we go to tennis matches a lot together. And finally, I just began buying the seats because it's like, okay, right. I'm just going to buy the tickets. And yeah, you know, we talked about it and it's fine. You know, when you don't talk about something, it tends to loom large and take on a life of its own. And our silence gives money a lot of power. But once you can talk about it and you can connect as two people, it puts money in its place as a tool and a benefit. And once you have that connection and you work through that messy conversation, you can talk about money in a much easier way. So you mentioned the awkwardness that came about when you were in your mom's group. And parenthood is certainly a common human experience that we all have. But It's one that everybody experiences on their own terms. And I remember before the Facebook IPO, I was a mere well-paid salary guy and we had two young kids. And I remember my wife said, can we get a night nurse? And she told me how much it costs. And I was like, that's unreasonable, blah, blah, blah. We finally did it. And the next morning I woke up and said, that's the best money I've ever spent in my life. And so it opened my eyes to the fact that childcare is one of these places in life where people will spend about as much as they can afford because the money just feels like it's the ROI on that money is so palpable. What other areas have you found that you really feel good about the money you spend? And what categories do you feel like, that's eh, that's not something I want to spend a lot of money on? Well, again, I guess it comes down to your values. I mean, if you sounds like you value your sleep. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I certainly did. Yeah. I, yeah, I still do. But when you have young kids, that's a precious commodity. It is it is values. So, you know, we really value experiencing different cultures and learning. And so spending money on traveling and experiences feels totally lucky and fortunate that we have the freedom to do that. What categories do you find that you'll spend basically what it takes to consume that good? And what categories do you see maybe your peers indulging in and where you're like, that doesn't do anything for me? Hmm. Yeah, I wish it was as clean as I can just, I have all these categories set out. I mean, we are very inconsistent, we as humans. So I could think of like, you know, it kind of ratcheted our way up into staying at really nice places and Mm. spending thousands even on a hotel room. So that was okay. It was really beautiful, luxurious and wonderful, but neither one of us could take anything from the mini bar. <laughs> I love it. That dollars for a you know, no way. That's right. And so, the forty dollar pot of coffee, no, no, nope, not possible. Nope. Yeah. Right. That breakfast better be included. That's right. That's right. Is there anything you have found that money can't buy? Oh, money can't buy most things that are really worthwhile having. 
good relationships, friendships, a sense of purpose, a community, a dog that loves you. I mean, really in the end, I mean, people talk about this a lot. There's a lot of research on what brings happiness. And I can say from firsthand experience, it's not money. Yes, you have to have your basic needs met and comfort achieved. There's a certain amount. And based on Princeton University in 2010, it's $75,000. Maybe it's a little more now, but after a certain amount, you know, money's not going to make you happier. And I can tell you that's true. Yes, we had the co-author of that study on uh, an early episode, Sir Angus Deaton. And so that's one of those themes that keeps coming up and up. Let's talk about purpose. And purpose and work are often intertwined. I love the quote from Joseph Conrad that you have a few times in the book, and I never heard it before. I don't like work. No man does. But I like what is in the work, the chance to find yourself. The more I've reflected on the nature of money and happiness and the role of work in our lives, I find that to be very, very true. When you quit your job at Microsoft, you said you felt left behind and you found your situation odd and lonely. And that's probably something a lot of new professional mothers feel when they have a child and take a break or leave the workplace. But how did having money compound those feelings? Yeah. So I realized, you know, my identity really was tied up in work. I didn't identify as a stay-at-home mom, nor did I identify as a wealthy woman. (laughs) In fact, both those titles were ones that I did not want. A dilettante at home? Yes. uh, Lunching and doing my nails and, you know, all the images that it brings up. So, I had to get comfortable and I had to find out what really was going to bring me a sense of purpose. And clearly being a mom was amazing and wonderful. But I did some experimenting. I I volunteered for other new moms and I actually worked in a restaurant kitchen. I'd always loved cooking and I asked if I could help for a day. And then I ended up working in this restaurant kitchen for a couple months. And that was a great experience because I was learning. I was part of a team of people and connected to them and feeling like I had to get lunch out the door. That was wonderful. Have you ever found the continuity or the clarity in answering the question, what do you do since you left the workplace? I haven't. I'll start with me. How about that? I haven't found it as easy to explain or haven't had quite the same conviction of telling people what I do, even though I'm more personally connected to what I do today than I ever was in the corporate world. But I still kind of feel like I'm not giving a full answer when I tell people what I do. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. Took a couple decades for me to not cringe (laughs) when someone asked, what do you do? And initially, I mean, when I stopped working at Microsoft, when people asked me, what do you do? I said, I used to work at Microsoft. I still feel like I have to say that. Yes, to give yourself credibility. But you know what? I think you have to own what you do. And now I tell people, well, I'm writing and I play a lot of tennis and I'm super lucky. If that person then turns their back and goes on to talk to someone else, it's their loss. (laughs) But yeah, I think we often define each other and define ourselves by the work that we do. And I think that's a key part of our culture. And it doesn't happen. Europeans don't ask each other, what do you do? We definitely look to, to work more than, than other cultures. So if you don't have a good answer for that or an answer that is impressive or an answer that helps you connect with someone else, I mean, I also think it's a way to connect with someone to ask, what do you do? To kind of get a sense of maybe where you are, how do we connect? 
Yeah. And who do we know in common? And I mean, in a world prior to LinkedIn and Facebook, I mean, how in the world did you come at how we might know each other or what we might have in common other than to ask that question? But you have a quote in the book where you say that your brother told you he thought that wealth robbed you of the opportunity to prove yourself. That's, that's some heavy stuff right there. Do you think he was right? I do. I mean, I think this is another if only, you know, if only I didn't have to work and you fantasize about all the things that you would do or, you know, lying on the beach or whatever. And the beach part is satisfying for, for maybe a month, but it's not as you might fantasize about not having to work because we do get so much from work. It is an opportunity to prove yourself and to become successful, to do things, to have a goal, to have a team, to be part of a structured day and a structured week and be part of something bigger than yourself. So I think there's so much that you get from work. And yeah, I do feel like I missed out on, I mean, you can't live all different lives. So my life brought me many, many wonderful things, but I have missed out on kind of the opportunity to prove myself in the workforce and to get the sense of satisfaction that comes with that. I can say more than that sometimes. So had you stayed in the workforce, you'd be the president of a medium to large size company or a CEO of a large company today, or you'd fill one of the roles you see your peers filling. Do you think they're happier than you are? Do you think that accomplishment has made them more comfortable with who they are? Or would they have the same feelings of envy about the life you've lived in the last 25 years? I think it's always easy to look over the fence and think, oh, they have it better or they have it worse or whatever. I think in the end, it really does come down to how you feel about your worth and your sense of purpose and where you get meaning in your life. And I think you can get it at many places. I also think, you know, again, community and relationships are so critical to our sense of well-being and happiness. So yeah, you look over and see someone who's had a wonderful career, and I can be envious of that. I'm sure they look over and think, well, you've got to live abroad for seven years, and yeah. they're envious of that. But you know, I think we all have something to bring each other. There are many happy lives. Your friend Mary says, I'm not sure my self-esteem is up to not having a job. My identity depends on my position and my success. I read that, and I'm like... That's one of the most self-aware quotes I've ever read on the topic of wealth and meaning and work. And when I left my job nine years ago, now I haven't gone back to it, right? But like, I didn't understand how much I was getting from work from an identity perspective and from a knowing my place in the world, or as Maslow would put it, belongingness until I left my job. So when I read that, I was like, I wish everybody who thinks that they should quit their job could read that and understand what she's saying. Yes. I don't think people realize it. I think of my husband, very successful at Microsoft and Amazon, and he did leave his work successfully and happily, but then he's since co-founded a nonprofit. He works just as hard doing that and has been working nonstop for the last 10 years, helping people get access to books and improve the quality of their lives through reading. And yeah, I think that's a very necessary piece of his life. He might not be working for money or for someone else, but he is working for bigger good. And I applaud what he's doing. It's kind of amazing. He gets a lot out of that work that he does. Jen, you mentioned the travel issue and how money can complicate how you travel or if you travel with friends. Are there other experiences, day-to-day experiences that difference in means complicates the social relationship? Yeah, I do think it can complicate the social relationship. And I think, again, that's why I think we need to talk to each other. I 
I'll tell you a story. My, my friend of mine, and this was a year after the fact, told me, you know, we almost didn't invite your family to join ours to see a Cirque du Soleil show. And I said, really? Well, why not? And she said, well, I agonized for weeks. I agonized over, I, I just was so worried that you would want to sit in front row seats and our family can't afford that. Mm. And when I heard this, I felt terrible. I hated to think of her worrying about this. And especially when her friendship meant more to me than front row seats. Didn't she know that? I mean, it's Cirque du Soleil, um, come on. I'm glad she brought it up because the fact that she trusted me enough to talk about money made me feel closer to her. Also, it helped me become more aware of the fact that, you know, maybe money was coming in between me and other people. And it helped me be more aware of how out of touch I could be. And so that's a, a reason to talk. I mean, we need to really understand kind of our own situations and also connect with each other. I think of another story of a friend of mine who uh, she's middle class and she and her husband said, you know, they drove the same car for many, many years. And when the thing finally broke down, she said, we bought an Audi Q5 and she loved the car. And then she was thinking about visiting her sister and she was thinking about driving up in the car and being judged. She thought it just in her mind, she was like, Oh, my sister's going to say something like, Oh, aren't we fancy too good for us now. Mm. And then in her mind, she started to justify the car like, well, it was used. It wasn't that expensive. So even before she saw her sister, she was making assumptions and telling herself stories. But what if she had actually talked to her sister? Right. Did she? She didn't. I don't actually know that how things kind of went. But I think they could have certainly have gone better if she admitted that she was feeling self-conscious about the car, or maybe she could have said, you know, I'm really excited about this car. I'm happy that we have this new car. Right. I think when we keep things hidden, it just gives them more power than we're giving ourselves. Fear of being judged is a big theme in your book. It comes up over and over again. Do you think guys feel the same way that women do about wealth and material things signifying their success? You're a guy. Why don't you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I was asking you to generalize, but I don't know. I feel it is more acceptable for guys to bling out. I, although, I, I don't know. You know, there's whole, there's whole TV shows based on women competing in the field of materialism. And let's just say not the most profound, ethical highest moral goods that they're discussing on those shows. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you think that men identify more with their wealth? I mean, there's certainly a gender role being played with men being the breadwinner and women kind of being the caregivers. Yeah. That thing that runs pretty deep. When we're single, it certainly feels more profound because when you're in the matching up phase of your life, certainly there's the potential as a guy to feel judged for not having as much material success as other people. But I went to lunch with an old friend of mine not long ago who is a PhD in neuroscience and is a professor at a very, very prestigious university. Not Ivy League, but very prestigious. And I was talking to her about success and, you know, and she's like, well, I don't feel very successful. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Have you looked at your resume recently? You're a freaking brain scientist. She's like, yeah, but I don't make a lot of money. I'm like, 
Well, first of all, you kind of do make a lot of money. I mean, if you live within your means, you're not going to live in a mansion and you're not going to drive a new Porsche every three years. But look at your resume. You're a complete success. And I just think that the focus on money gets people twisted around the axle of what does it mean to be successful? And is money the definition of success? Not all important efforts in our world are highly remunerative. Right. I hate to see us, you know, put so much emphasis on money and equate it with success because, yeah, maybe you get the money and then what? Your success needs to come from from within, as they say. And I think about this person, it sounds like she has a little bit of the imposter syndrome, sort of feeling like, oh, I didn't really do this. or She didn't really um, do it. She didn't really make, yeah, you know, all A's she did. since she yeah, was in fourth grade um, and then make it through a PhD program and then win a professorship and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, you didn't do any of that. But I get it. I mean, pretty successful. Imposter syndrome can be assuaged, you know, when your bank account is so big, you go, well, I must be succeeding because look at the size of that bank account, even if you don't no, feel No, I don't it think inside. it ever goes. I don't no. think, I think there's plenty of uh, people who have a lot of money who still feel like, well, I don't know, how, who knows how this happened. Right. All right. Two more questions. Number one, who can you talk to about money today? Besides me, you can call me anytime. We can Zoom. Thank you. I'm hoping I can talk to anyone. That's my challenge to myself. I don't think it's easy. I think it makes me very nervous still. And I have to push myself to talk and stop and say, look, wait, I want to talk about this. And I I challenge us all to do that because I think if you can move through those moments of discomfort, those awkward money situations, uh, on the other side, there's a sense of connection and a sense of relief that can be found. You say in the introduction that you told yourself for a long time that money didn't buy happiness, but secretly believing it just might. So... Here we are many years later, a book later. What's the verdict? Does money buy happiness? How can it not? Well, I can say it really does not. (laughs) It really does, again, and I feel like I'm a broken record here, but it doesn't bring happiness. The happiness comes from feeling good about yourself, having great relationships with other people, feeling a sense of purpose. Money is not going to do it for you. It really won't. You can have more and more and more and more, and there's never, it's an unending more that you can get trapped in. I mean, there'll always be more. There'll always be less too, but really there's no magic number. And the happiness comes from family and friends, really quality of your relationships. I also think there's a sense of great joy in being generous and in giving as well. Well, that can be the second volume of this interview at some point in the future, because I think philanthropy and how to do it right is a whole other episode that we could spend hours talking about, because there's a lot people don't know about giving away. You just think, well, I'll write a check and I'm done. But clearly there's a lot to learn there. And we'll just leave it there for today, though. The name of the book is We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. The author is my guest today, Jennifer Richard. Jennifer, where can people find out more about you and your book? Thank you. Yes. Go to my website, jenniferrisher.com, and you can purchase my book. I'd recommend you purchase at an indie bookstore. We want to support our local bookstores right now and always. So check out the video I posted on my website. Again, jenniferrisher.com. The link to Jen's website is in the show notes, and it's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-R-I-S-H-E-R.com. Jen, Great talking to you. Thank you very much for putting yourself out there with this book. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Jennifer, for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed getting to know you. 
off mic a little bit as well uh, via email and our Zoom discussion. I believe that what you're doing here is important and that there's not enough people making themselves vulnerable, talking about this topic, saying that you want to be a better person who happens to have money and that there's a real opportunity out there. See the link to Jen's website in the show notes, jenniferrisher.com. There are links to her book there. You can find it on Amazon. We need to talk a memoir about wealth. All right, let's talk about takeaways. Number one, money is weirder than you think it is. Even though you believe that you know, you're know you a smart person, went to college, you have all kinds of preparation and hard work, when the money finally arrives, it can be weirder than you think. Number one, you think that like it's going to make you feel special. And as Ryan Holiday said on this very show, nobody throws you an effing parade. And it's true. You think that somehow when the dough arrives, you're going to feel more important. You're going to feel satisfied on a level you hadn't felt satisfied before, but it just shows up and it's you with a bigger checking account. You don't feel any different. And really, depending upon how you were raised and what sort of feelings about money you've internalized, you may even feel guilt. You may even feel the need to get rid of it so that you don't feel weird or extraordinary. So there's a lot of crazy emotions that come along with it. I didn't feel guilt. I chose not to feel guilt, but I did feel confusion and I fell into some traps of doing what I thought rich people did. I bought a big house. I quit my job without really thinking about how those actions were going to help me live a better, more fulfilled, happier life. And I think that before you get the dough, or if you already have it, you got to do a lot of work on who you are and what you want from life. Otherwise, you're going to end up blowing that cash on things that other people tell you look like happiness, but they're not. Takeaway number two, if the world wants better rich people, the way to do that isn't through trying to make rich people feel bad or guilty. It's helping them to see their potential and helping them embrace the true sources of happiness in life. I think Jen is trying to do that here and using herself as an example of what can happen if you don't do a lot of that work to understand who you are. Because as many people have said, money doesn't change who you are. It just sort of exacerbates who you are or it turns the microscope on of who you are and amplifies those tendencies, good and bad in your heart. If you're a generous, kind, humble person, you have the opportunity to do more for others. If you're a narcissistic, self-involved person, you have the opportunity for money to just drag you down to deeper depths of those inclinations. So do the work prior to that. And lastly, related takeaways, know who you are before you achieve or blow through your financial dreams, because they could be easier to reach than you think they are. And if you're not clear on what you want from life before you get what you want, it's not clear that you'll be able to handle it. So are you in touch enough with yourself and with your spouse because he or she is going to have thoughts on how you leverage dough to make your life what each of you thinks it should be? And the time to talk about that is early before it all arrives. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you've got guest ideas, suggestions, feedback, please shoot me an email at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Follow me on the socials, the links to which are all in the show notes. You can just search Paul Ollinger, O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. You'll find your way to where I am. I'm not that hard to find. I make it pretty easy. Hope you're having a great day. Keep it going. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.